Hi, this is Dean. Thanks for joining me. This is the Content Management Bible Podcast. I am reading, summarizing, and or commenting on the Content Management Bible, which is a book published by Bob Boyko in 2002. In this episode, I am going to be discussing the introduction. I want to say that it's about 12 pages, and if it was a regular chapter, I could do some math, but it's the introduction, so the page numbers are in Roman numerals, which I am universally awful at interpreting. So I'm going to eyeball it and say it's about 15 pages. In this chapter, Bob is going to introduce the three reasons to do content management, and he's going to talk a bit about each one. So let's get started. Okay, appropriately enough, we're going to start from the very beginning. These are the words that open up the introduction. I'm going to read a few paragraphs from this section. Bob writes, when I began working on content management, the term content management did not exist. I'm going to break here for just a second. I'm sorry for interrupting after the very first sentence, but I did laugh a bit when I read this last week. I'm rereading this book now a couple decades after I originally read it. And I had to laugh when I read that line because I've often said I've been working in content management since before it had a name. I've been working in content management in some form or another since 1996 or so. Um, so I just thought it was funny to hear that as the very first line. Um, I'll start over. When I began working on content management, the term content management did not exist as of five years ago when my organization decided to strategically pursue content management as a focused practice. Only a handful of software companies and industry analysts were using the term content management. The term e-business was all the rage, though. Today, you don't hear much about e-business, but content management is a fairly well-recognized product and industry category. Hundreds of products claim to do some form of content management, and all the major analyst groups continue to see content management as a major need and source of expenditure. I have no doubt that the term content management, like all others, will fall from favor as the next big thing comes into view. Uh, this is Dean. I think what happened was six, seven, eight years ago... Um, digital experience became the new term. There were a lot of vendors who no longer wanted to be referred to as content management systems as vendors felt that they had saturated the feature set with people that people associated with content management. They had to come up with something else. And so they expanded into what I would call content delivery marketing tools and they coined digital experience as the new term. So I don't think digital experience and content management are exactly the same, but that's the new term that kind of entered the parlance after content management. Uh, Bob continues, on the other hand, I have no doubt that the need for content management under whatever guise it might assume will only grow over the next few decades as we bring the entire universe of information online. That is a bold statement there, bring the entire universe of information online. I wonder how close we've gotten to that. Uh, next paragraph is, interestingly, I believe that there's nothing new in content management. At the same time, it is completely new. Most of the concepts that I build upon are from other fields. On the other hand, by bringing these ideas together, a new way of thinking about content and publishing emerges. And now he goes into an interesting um, hypothetical, and I'll comment on this in just a second. For example, you need to know your audiences to do content management. This is not a new idea. Writers, marketers, and even computer programmers have been doing audience analysis in one form or another for a long time. On the other hand, by combining the way these three groups have looked at audiences and applying it to the very particular needs of personalization in a content management system, I can create an overall concept and practice of audience that goes beyond 
what any of these disciplines has done. And the reason why I find that interesting is because he's talking about personalization, and he'll talk about it quite a bit more throughout the rest of the book. But I find that interesting because when the book was written 20 years ago, uh, personalization was not the same thing that we understand it to be now. What we understand now are what we call rules-based personalization or anonymous personalization, where we examine the behavior of somebody on a digital property and we modify our content based on that. Or we're moving to machine learning and AI-based personalization that examine aggregate behavior patterns of how people interact with our content and then make suggestions and recommendations and alter content based on that. The only personalization that Bob would have probably known about 20 years ago would have been known personalization when somebody actually identifies themselves to your digital property. So they log in or something and you actually know who they are. And based on knowing who they are and maybe things like permissions or user groups, you would modify the content that was delivered. That was the concept of personalization they were dealing with 20 years ago, which is very different than how we know personalization today. Uh, The final paragraph in the section reads, This book is my response to the questions I have been repeatedly asked. What I hear is, this is so different, I don't even know how to approach it. And it's at a level of complexity far beyond what we have ever done before. And this is so new that we can't find anyone with enough experience to pull it off. Um, I'll finish uh, reading the introduction there. I find that interesting, those statements about how this is so wildly complex. We don't even know how to approach it. This is so new, we don't know anybody that can do it. 20 years down the road, it's fascinating on how much more complex we've become. I've now been working in this industry for about 25 years, and I think it's safe to say for me personally, I know more about content management than I have ever known before. Yet every single day, I feel like I'm the dumbest person on earth. I learn something new in this industry every single day. Um, Every single day, I'm reminded about how little I know and how far I have to go. And so one of the reasons why I did want to do a podcast of this book is I wanted to look back in the past and the perspective that we had 20 years ago and the things we were thinking about back then and how do they relate to the things that we are looking at today. So that was the end of the first section. Um, In the next section, Bob is going to talk about the structure for the rest of this chapter. So this next section is short, but it really underlies the rest of the chapter. Uh, The section is helpfully entitled Three Good Reasons to Do Content Management. And in it, Bob is going to list uh, the three things that really he's going to talk about for the rest of the chapter. Uh, He writes, I see three major ways to enter into the ideas of content management. I present them here to help you understand why content management is so important. These on-ramps are the following. And then there's a uh, three-point bulleted list. The heading of the first bullet is... Content management gives flesh and bones to today's notions of e-business. If e-business is the process of reaching your constituents with the right information and transactions at the right time, then content management is the way to make an e-business real and workable. And the second bullet reads, content management is an antidote to today's information frenzy. Websites are getting out of control. We are expected to harvest good information from wider and wider contributor bases. We are expected to make information entirely reusable so it can be distributed at any time to anyone. Content management can help you organize and direct your information to keep it under control. And then the third bullet, the heading is content management addresses one of the key unanswered questions of the coming information age. And in quotes, the question is, how is it possible to give particular value and substance to a piece of information? Content management systems create and manage pieces of information and tag them with all the information you might need to figure out what they are worth. 
Um, the first two bullets I think are fairly obvious. Uh, this first bullet about content management gives flesh and bones um, to today's notions of e-business. What he's saying there is that e-business, as he's defining it, is really based around the delivery of information and content management is fundamentally how you do that. So the idea of e-business exists in theory. It's actually delivered as a concrete reality by a content management system. And then the second bullet, content management is an antidote to today's information frenzy. Also uh, fairly straightforward. We've been trying to manage and organize content for years. Content aggregation is what I call the discipline of using a content management system to organize content in a way to impart greater value. We're still trying to figure out how to do that well today. So that bullet is, um, is pretty clear. The third one I thought was interesting. Um, the unanswered question again, how is it possible to give particular value and substance to a piece of information? Um, that's interesting to me. That feels like uh, an analytics issue. Um, I'm not sure how he's going to bring that back to content management, but I am sure interested enough to find out. Um, what we are going to do for the rest of this chapter now is talk about those three particular points and go a little more in depth into each one of them. So in the last two sections, Bob has talked about the idea of e-business. Um, e-business, if you're as old as I am and you were on the Internet in the late 1990s, that's what everybody was calling doing business on the web. They were calling it e-business. It was kind of a dumb term, but uh, Bob's used it in the last two sections. And now he has a section that's helpfully entitled, What is e-business? So I'm going to read a bit from that. In a nutshell, e-business is the process of delivering any part of your business to any audience wherever it is. E-business does not change the basis of business, but it does change the practice of doing business. Although the term e-business has lost a bit of its original shine. <laughs> this is Dean. I find that hilarious. Uh, 20 years ago, the term e-business had only been around for a few years, ubiquitous as it was. Uh, in the years since then, it has pretty much lost all of its shine. Uh, Bob continues, the concept remains an immensely important one, and although e-business does not change the fabric of business, it does bring a quantitative change in the following aspects of business. And then there's a four-point bullet list. The heading of the first bullet is ubiquity. Parts of your business can appear on any computer screen anywhere there is connectivity. Time and space are no longer barriers to conducting business. Second bullet point, the heading is depth. You can deliver as much detail and background as you can manage to create in a convenient and easy to consume fashion. The third bullet is heading is speed. The slowness of your human processes is the only necessary delay between the creation of information and its general availability. And the last bullet, the heading is, again, personalization. Your ability to understand and serve your audiences is the only impediment to tailoring messages and offerings that are as individual as you want them to be. So, um, interesting list there. There's four points, which if you are a millennial, probably just is just business to you. Um, if you didn't know about um, business prior to the internet, uh, the fact that we're talking about these four points probably seems a little obvious. Um, this is fundamentally the promise of business. And what you find here is that when he's talking about business, he's talking about business in the same way that he talks about content management and the idea of this is kind of breaking down these monolithic processes into smaller units. And so the idea of ubiquity, depth, speed, and personalization is breaking down a larger process into smaller components that can be delivered individually.
We're going to skip down to a section called delivering any part of your business. This idea is something that Bob maintains underpins e-business. Uh, Bob writes, e-business is the process of electronically delivering the right parts of your business at the right time. Generally, you deliver your business through computer networks and onto someone's computer screen. The essence of e-business, however, is not in the particular way in which you deliver your business, but in the fact that the essential parts of your business are stored and managed digitally and can be delivered in whatever medium you desire. By digitaling the information and services your organization provides, you make it available for delivery over digital or non-digital channels. Your own internet site is only one of these channels. I find this kind of interesting because 20 years ago, what Bob is talking about here clearly is multi-channel or omni-channel publishing, which we do quite a bit of today. But 20 years ago, um, digital channels were fairly limited. You had the web, clearly you had your own website, and you had email, but you didn't have a whole lot else to publish to digitally. Uh, I did some research. Texting kind of got started in 95. So in 2002, I think we were still in like the early adopter phase. I was a late adopter for texting. I remember watching the James Bond film Casino Royale, and there's a plot point that resolves, revolves around James Bond getting a text message. And this is 2006, and I was sitting in the theater watching him get this text message and thinking to myself, what is that? I keep seeing this. This must be a thing. So um, I, I admit I was something of a late adopter, but still, I mean, texting was maybe the mid-noughts at best. Um, LinkedIn got started in 2002. Facebook was 2004. Twitter was 2006. So 20 years ago, there just weren't a lot of other digital channels. Helpfully, Bob has a list here. There's a bullet list of six bullets where Bob says that your content can be published to. Here are the six. Your intranet site and any extranet sites you host. The websites of other partner and promoter organization. Kiosks and other offline digital publications. Print publications that include shared functionality I'm sorry, shared information and, quote, paper functionality, end quote. I'm not sure what he means by paper functionality. Uh, screens for devices such as web-enabled phones. That's fascinating, a web-enabled phone. That was a, 20 years ago. That was an amazing thing. And personal digital assistants or PDAs, and that's fascinating as well. We just know them today as phones, but back in the day, you had your phone, which was like a Nokia flip phone with a little black and white LCD screen, and then you had a PDA, you had a separate device, like the original one was a Palm Pilot. And um, there were others, but all the functions that we now associate with a phone were really in two separate devices. And then finally, personalized broadcast email messages. Uh, so those are the list, and, and that kind of tracks with what I said about there being fairly few digital channels 20 years ago. Uh, Bob continues, what are the parts of your business? Loosely, you can break these parts into information and interactions as follows. Information is the text, sound, image, and motion that communicate what you would like to convey to your constituents. Interactions are the capabilities you would like to project, such as buying product, asking for help, contacting an individual in the organization, or participating in an organization-sponsored discussion. Interactions are pieces of functionality that your organization can digitize and treat just the same as information. Uh, that's an interesting concept, the idea of functionality and interactions as content. To do e-business, the wide and possibly unorganized information and interactions that are so key to your organization must be identified, digitized, and segmented into useful chunks so that they can be delivered individually to those who need them, customers, members, staff, partners, or constituents.
The next section I'll read from is entitled, How Do You Do E-Business? And Bob writes, E-Business is the process of delivering any part of your business to any audience wherever they are. And he has three bullets. The first one is entitled, Know Your Audiences. As you will see, to know your audiences, you must study them to fully understand what they want and how they want it. You then segment them into groups based on traits you can discover and track. Finally, for each audience, you create a value proposition, including what the audience wants, what you want from them, and how you are going to give value equal to what you want from them. The second bullet, the heading is Know Your Business. To know your business, you must first study it to understand how your business can be segmented to small, useful information and functionality parts. You must name and organize the parts and understand how the parts are created, maintained, delivered, and destroyed. Uh, this is Dean. Um, this seems like a callback to his prior concept of what e-business was, which was really a breaking down uh, of business from a monolithic whole into smaller parts. Anyway, Bob continues in the third bullet. The heading is relate your business to the audience. You need to decide which audience wants what information and functionality in which context on which pages, on which sites, and what other publications, and so on. You must then create a set of rules so that staff can decide who gets what when. Uh, this is Dean. I find this interesting because this almost feels like the content strategy revolution of about seven, eight, nine, ten years ago when uh, Christina Howerson and Melissa Rock came out with a red book, um, Content Strategy for the Web. It really kind of gave birth to the content strategy movement, which hadn't really had a name. People had been doing it for years and years and years, and it seems to be what Bob is describing here, but it was finally given a name when the Red Book came out. Uh, further down, uh, Bob actually names three practices that are how you do e-business, and I think these are interesting because these really map to how I've taught content management for years. The first bullet, the heading is Collect Content. Your organization must set up systems that efficiently capture the information and the functionality you want to deliver. To collect, collect content, you need editorial and metatorial systems. So that's the first appearance of the word metatorial, which will come back later. Bob is well known for his coining of the term metatorial and metator. It's a combination of the word metadata and editorial. Um, Bob continues, editorial systems ensure that the content has appropriate and consistent format and style. Meditorial systems ensure that the content is appropriately and consistently tagged to be part of the organization's content scheme. The second bullet is manage content. Your organization must set up a system to store and organize information and functionality outside of any particular delivery channel. Management systems are usually databases of one sort or another that store and categorize content, making that content easy to find and retrieve. I find it interesting here that he talks about databases directly. Um, this is the content management Bible, not the content management system Bible. I don't believe, and we'll find this out as we go through the book, but I don't believe that Bob advocates for dedicated content management systems. Again, that'll probably reveal itself later in the book, but here he's talking about just putting content in raw databases. And then the final bullet is publish content. Your organization must set up a system to design and deliver the right information and functionality in the ways that your audiences expect and respond to favorably. The publishing system undoubtedly will manage a comprehensive website. That's kind of interesting. Undoubtedly. Of course, this was 2002. Websites were all we were doing. Today, with omnichannel publishing and headless CMS, the answer there might be a bit different. Uh, but it could and should manage the other sorts of publications that your organization needs.
And he closes this section with the thought that rather than let yourself become overwhelmed by the immensity of e-business or even dismiss it as just another empty catchphrase, I would like you to consider how you can put it into its proper perspective. The next section is entitled Content Management Cures Information Frenzy. I'll read the first couple of paragraphs from this section, and then I'll skip to the end. Bob has a nice thought in here. Bob writes, It used to be that you could get away with creating new communications without worrying much about the old ones. Except for the occasional bibliography or citation, we could do most of our writing, recording, or filming in a vacuum. It was up to the reader, listener, or watcher to make connections between this new stuff and the rest of what might exist in the world. We also had the luxury of believing that our communications were single things. He has quoted the word things. We created memos, articles, books, songs, sitcoms, and movies. We could study and internalize the standards and techniques of our chosen genre and then create an example of it. In our vacuum, we could assume that a book was just a book and a movie was just a movie. Although it is simple and comfortable, in the information age, life in a vacuum sucks. Cute little play on words there. Today, the comfortable vacuum of the single communication product has been replaced by the unfathomably complex, fully connected, multiply targeted content component, exclamation point. Starting with the web and ending who knows where, your job as a communicator is now no longer to create a single item, not a book or a movie. You now create content. Content is meant to be connected, used, and reused with no great assumptions about how and when. The web is the first, and only the first, in parentheses, big place where the premium is placed on how your communications are connected to others rather than how complete they are in themselves. Books, songs, movies, they all have a beginning and end and a point. The good ones are nice little standalone packages of meaning. The good websites are the ones that are entirely enmeshed in connections with other sites and resources on the web. Far from standing alone, they integrate into the wider web of communications around them. I'll skip to the end. The last paragraph of the section reads... This book is my attempt to roll my experience and thinking into a complete picture of this new notion of communication and how it can address the dilemma of overload by organizing content into wider and wider schemes of relationships. I love that phrase, schemes of relationships. It becomes more accessible and memorable to the consumer and more manageable to the creator. The same systems can help you organize and target information so that rather than being overwhelmed by information, your audiences are exposed to just the right amount of information at the right times. I think Bob is really getting to the point here that the web caused content to decompose. We used to compose content in monolithic structures that we had to proceed through in a serial format, like a book. You read it one chapter and then the next chapter and the next chapter. And the web caused content to fragment into smaller pieces that were connected to each other in non-linear ways. And I think that's the point he's getting here. And that caused a certain amount of information frenzy and content management, we hope, is the solution to that. The last section in the introduction has Bob talking about content management in the information age. Bob writes, people talk about the information age as a fait accompli. I looked that up, by the way. Fait accompli means something that has occurred and is deemed to be irreversible. Uh, Bob continues, They suppose that because a worldwide communication network exists, we are fully connected. They assume that computer technologies already have turned the world into a constant digital information stream. 
The coup de grace, many contend, is the World Wide Web, which has combined the global network with the latest computer technology to create the first tangible information economy, complete with transactions and stock market value for information assets. The signs are all around us that the information age is coming and coming quickly. The volume of information that needs to be produced and somehow managed has grown to the level that without serious planning and organization, the cycle of information creation and use bogs down or simply crashes. For many organizations, this is the key dilemma that drives them towards more sophisticated systems for information management. The quality of information to be handled drives us forward, but what really heralds the new information age is qualitative, not quantitative. The most important signs are the more subtle qualitative ways in which our notions of information are changing as follows. There's a three-point bulleted list. The first item in the heading is information is gaining value. Traditionally considered to be a necessary evil on the way to their true goals, organizations are slowly bestowing upon information the status of an asset, not a burden. The second bullet, the heading, is individual works are being subsumed by wider information webs. Information is beginning to coalesce across creators, organizations, disciplines, and industries. We are beginning to ask authors not to create a standalone work, but rather to contribute to an existing content domain. Creators are beginning to contribute to overall repositories of reusable information, where their work is related to and cross-referenced with other contributions to produce a growing web of content. And the third and final bullet, the heading is, information publication is disengaging from creation. The way information is consumed is beginning to be unlinked from the way it is created. How a particular piece of information is formatted, delivered, and connected to other pieces of information can now effectively be varied and changed based on the needs of the consumer. This book can help ease your transition from the information overload period we are now in to the information economy toward which we are headed. It tries to answer the following key questions. And there's a six-point bulleted list. First bullet is, what does a system that handles massive amounts of information look like? Second bullet reads, how can a system be created that recognizes the value of each piece of information and guides contributors to most easily contribute to a growing knowledge scheme? The third bullet is, how can a single system produce a very wide range of well-targeted custom publications from the same information base. The fourth bullet is, how can all this automation and systemization of information happen without endangering the very important relationship between the author and her readers, listeners, or viewers? The fifth bullet reads, what are the steps and processes you need to create such a system? And the last bullet is, how can this sort of system fit into and serve an organization's overall goals and initiatives? Skipping to the end, the introduction concludes with this paragraph. My biggest hope is that this book raises the right questions and proposes answers that move you towards a successful system for managing content and consumers. I have no fantasy that this work is the last word on content management. I do believe, however, that it is one of the first. And that concludes the introduction of the Content Management Bible.